sermon number 583, Today's True Prophets, preached in the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown on Sunday, October 17, 1971. The scripture lesson is from 2 Peter 1, 12 through 21. The second letter that Peter wrote, first chapter, beginning at the 12th verse. For this reason I will always remind you of these matters, even though you already know them and have been firmly fixed in the truth you have received. I think it only right for me to stir up your memory of these matters as long as I am still alive. For I know that I shall soon put off this mortal body, as our Lord Jesus Christ plainly told me. I will do my best then to provide a way for you to remember these matters at all times and after my death. For we have not depended on made-up legends in making known to you the mighty coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. With our own eyes we saw his greatness. We were there when he was given honor and glory by God the Father, when the voice came to him from the supreme glory saying, This is my own dear Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice coming from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mount. So we are even more confident of the message proclaimed by the prophets. You will do well to pay attention to it, for it is like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the light of the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all else, however, remember this. No one, no one can explain by himself a prophecy in the scriptures. For no prophetic message ever came just from the will of man. That men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they spoke the message that came from God. In this modern day of the 20th century, we find there are many and varied and weird misconceptions concerning this ancient office of the prophet. There are some people who feel that there is no such thing in today's society as a prophet, a person who has been called by God to speak for God to other men and women. They say, no, that particular office or function of the prophet was for a special time in history, namely that period before the coming of Jesus Christ. And after our Lord came, was crucified and resurrection, and the Holy Spirit was revealed unto mankind at Pentecost, the office of prophet became extinct because it was no longer necessary. And Consequently, they say that there are no prophets today in this nation or in the whole kingdom of God. 
And then there are other people who disagree violently with that interpretation. They say, oh, yes, yes, there are prophets. Open your eyes, listen with your ears. You know them by their eccentricities. Speaking in tongues. Those people that stand on corners with their loud voices and beat their drums, those are prophets. Individuals who are miraculously healed from impending death or, or people who seem to live long beyond their advanced years and seem to be blessed with a certain charismatic spirit. These God has set aside and called specifically to the office of the prophet. Then there are other people who think of prophets as being individuals who are used solely for foretelling the future, of being able to program today precisely and accurately what is going to happen this afternoon or tomorrow or next week. And whenever you use the word prophet, immediately comes to mind the image of the prophetess Jean Dixon or some other clairvoyant. Then there are other people who think that a prophet is the preacher. And with his long, drawled-out messages of negativism, telling people to repent, this is the message of the prophet today. Well, we have all sorts of ideas of who the prophet is, if there is such an individual. But probably the greatest misconception, the greatest mistake we make is when we begin to think of prophets, if we do believe in them existing today, as being solely other people. That person, or this individual, or that particular institution or study, and fail to realize that we, you and me, we are the prophets of today. Now that sounds rather presumptuous, I know, but we take no less of an authority than Jesus' right-hand man, Peter, who says this, he calls us in Acts the sons of the prophets. If I understand scripture correctly, when he quoted the great prophecy from Joel as being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, when he said that that was the day when God was pouring out his spirit upon all flesh, and as a result of that pouring out of God's spirit, the sons and the daughters would prophesy. And the old men would dream dreams, and the young men would see visions. He was referring and alluding to you and to me. You see, if we bear the name Christ, if we believe in the Holy Spirit as we confessed a few minutes ago in the Apostles' Creed as believing in, then you see by the power of this Holy Spirit God is working through things to us, and we are the sons and the daughters that are to be prophesied. We are those old men that are having the dreams. We are the young men who are having the visions. We are the prophets of today. At least God thinks we are, and expects us to be, and 
It's kind of frightening, is it not, when you realize that God thinks of us as being in the same tradition as Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos. We travel in rather select company when God looks upon us as being the prophets of today. And it should make us want to ask the question, how can we be sure that we are the true prophets of God today and not imitators and people who tell of truths that are not of the Almighty? How can you be sure that you are a true prophet of today? I think the only way you can be assured of this is if you do stand literally in the tradition of these other great men of yesteryear. The men and the women who were able to stand on a hilltop or in a palace of government or in the confines of their own community and say without fear and without trembling, Thus saith the Lord. You are a true prophet of God when, like those giants of yesteryear, you have God's perspective on the world. When you have God's perspective on the world, and that's just a polite, beautiful way that fits into the outline to say you look at the world as God looks at it. You don't see the world as you would like to see it or as you would hope that it would be, but you see it as it is, as God sees it, and as God wants it to become. Now, this is a very difficult task, and it requires great maturity on the part of us. It requires discipline. It requires study. It requires great meditation. It requires many, many hours of work and continuous thinking if ever we are to get that perspective which God has on the world. Because, you see, basically we are people who would like to see things as we would want to see them. We are very much like a child in that way and never grow out of that childhood experience. Did you, did you ever look carefully at a picture drawn by a first grader? When you do, you, you notice not only great creativity, but you notice great disproportion. Look at the next picture that your first grader or some first grader draws. The people are always bigger than the houses in which they're supposed to live. The mountains are smaller than the other buildings. The cows and the animals are always bigger than the barns. And everything is out of proportion. And many of us, without being able to have God's perspective on the world, do not see the world as it actually is. Many of us are blinded by the greatest thing in the world, love, from seeing the world as it is. A young boy went into the lingerie department of a great exchange store with the idea of buying his mother a slip for her birthday. He told the clerk what he wanted, but he was sorry he did not know her size. And the clerk said, well, perhaps if you tell me something about your mother, I can help you. Is she tall or short, fat or skinny? 
And with very loving eyes and a great happy voice, he said, Oh, my mother, she's just perfect. So the sales clerk wrapped up in a beautiful package a slip size 34. And the boy took it home, and the next few days passed, and the mother brought it back and exchanged it for a size 52. <laughs> you see, the boy with love in his eyes did not see as things actually were. And oftentimes love for family, love for people, love for the church, love for the country, does not help us in getting God's perspective upon the world. There's only one way, and the easiest way I know, to be able to get such a view, and that is through the study the overview of God's Word, the Holy Bible. I know no other way that God has blessed as readily and as easily as He does in promising to us that if we have an understanding of His Word, we shall be able to see the world through His eyes. And you people, as you become better and better students of the Bible, you, you'll realize that this, to a great extent is a, his, extent, is a great history of a people, a people who are constantly losing sight of the goals which God has set. In the Old Testament, you see people like you and me who, instead of using means to an end, they are using the means as ends to themselves, and how God from time to time in history has had to call spokesmen down to this earth to remind man of what is right and what is wrong, to remind man and help him to separate the trivia from the important things in life, to help him to see the insignificant as not being nearly as important as the significant of separating the chaff from the wheat. God himself in Jesus Christ was not one of his main purposes in coming was to show us how to live and what is really important in life and to help us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and not to be trying to serve the inconsequential things like manon and those things which are of no lasting and eternal value. This is in God's Word, and it is only as we become saturated with God's Word do we have a perspective on the world and see the world as God would have it. And we just cannot be true to the calling which is ours as prophets without foremost that first perspective view which can come only from the Word of God. Do you have it? None of us has it to the fullest extent, for after all, if we saw the world as God sees it in its entirety, then of course we would be God. But this is the goal for which we must strive, to be able to say without a question or a doubt that this is what God would have for man in the world today, having God's perspective on the world. And then when you have that, then you can begin to perceive and have some perception of the problems of the world 
First you see God's perspective on the world, and following that, and only then can you have perception into the problems of the world. An individual has very rightly said that four things must be done with problems. First of all, you must see them. Secondly, you must study them. Thirdly, you state them. And fourthly, you solve them. And the most difficult, he claims, and I agree with him, comes not in the solving, nor the stating, nor the studying of the problems, but rather the seeing of the problems. Everywhere you go, whether it be in industry, engineering, medicine, the church, the most important and vibrant personality is that individual who perhaps does not solve the problem, but who sees the problem. This is true in engineering. Engineering would never have made one advancement if it had not been for the inventor, the man who sees that something has to be done. Where would medicine be an advancement if it was not for the diagnostician? The kingdom of God will not be advanced here on earth without the prophet, the seer, the individual who can see the problem. You see, this is what is so wonderful and yet so strange about this tradition in which we are to follow. The Old Testament prophets were called by another name. They were called seers. They were individuals who were able to, yes, program the future because they were able to logically see what would happen in the days to come if a particular evil was not eradicated. But more than that, they were able to see and have insight into the problems of their particular day. This is why they were so important. They didn't solve too many problems, but they were able to have insight into the problems that existed. This is our role. I don't mean to slight our importance nor our ability. But ladies and gentlemen, ours is not to solve the problems of the world. That's up to God. That's up to God through Jesus Christ to solve them. Our particular job here in life is to point up the problems and make other people aware of them and then point these people and dedicate these problems to the glory of God and to the cross of Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ who says, I have overcome the world, which includes all the problems of the world. I don't like to minimize and to oversimplify, but do you realize that in this great society in which we live, this great technological, scientific, industrial, well-educated age, there is practically nothing that we cannot solve. We put men on the moon. We have found the discovery and the solution to so many diseases. We have the answer, and religiously speaking, we are told that we can do all things through Christ, all things through Christ, who strengtheneth us. Yet look around you. Problems in our home, problems between races, churches, splitting and church people fighting, tensions in offices, 
so many of the problems of the world, they're not solved. And it's not because we don't have the solution. It's because we can't pinpoint the problem. We have the solutions in Christ and in technology and all these other things which God has blessed and given to us. But some of us don't know the problems yet. And the reason that we do not have perception into the problems is because we do not have God's perspective on the world. And God, you see, is expecting us to be people who have insight into why we have these tensions and difficulties and problems in the world today. No, government is not solving the problem. No, science is not solving the problem. The reason is that some of us who are supposed to be pointing up the problem, we're not doing it. Let me add, though, I know why, I guess, some of us don't want to assume this role of prophet. Because it's a little dangerous. You have to risk many things, and oftentimes you're rewarded only with penalties. The world has a history of first calling the individuals who see the problems at first lunatics, idiots, fools. The world has a history of crucifying first its seers and its prophets and then a few decades or centuries later canonizing them. And I don't care what field it is in, not only in religion, but this is true in science and engineering and in politics as well. These great people whom we idolize in our churches and about whom we preach sermons and whom we try to emulate, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of these people, do you realize that in their day they had more enemies than they had friends? They were despised. They were rejected. Not one of them wanted to be a prophet, you know. Not one of them went to the employment agency or even on their knees prayed to God that he would call them to that great specific office. They never knew that in 19... What year is it? 71, October 17th. The man like myself would be standing in a pulpit in some little hamlet of Pennsylvania preaching about them. No, 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 no. These were just individuals who in some way had gotten some perspective of how God wanted this world and then were able to perceive and have perception as to the problems that are in the world and then who stated those problems after they saw them and who said unto themselves, Woe if we do not preach the gospel. These men were not made, they were born out of tribulation. And that's the history, you see, of the true prophet. An individual who knows what should be there, can see why it is not, and then has the persistence 
to continue on with his message no matter what. That's the great help that I find from the prophets, not only from what they say because, oh, they're, they're always so right. They had great, great view of how God wanted things to be. They were able to have great perception, but it's their persistence that helps me so much. These men called a sin a sin, no matter who was committing it, be he pauper or be he prince. These men, no matter how much they wanted to quit, they never did. Remember Elijah and his broom tree? Jeremiah wanted to die. Obstacles kept confronting these people time and time and time again, and most of them, if not all, met some great, horrible death because of what they said. And usually the death came not at the hands of some enemy, but rather from those of their own country. But though their bodies were dead, their messages never died. And though they are dead, they still speak to us this day. And the reason being, they were persistent. They were persistent in proclaiming that that they had seen from God's perspective. They were persistent in the concepts, the perceptions that they had of the world's problems. You see, when God calls a prophet, he doesn't call him to be successful. He calls us only to be faithful. And a prophet never quits. Ladies and gentlemen, there are all sorts of prophets in our land today, and people who are making a pretty good profit from their prophecies. And what this world needs today are men who can stand in pulpits of the church, men and women who can stand in our halls of justice and of government people who can stand in the classrooms of our schools and colleges, people who can stand in the offices of industries and in the shops of merchandise, people who can in their homes and in the privacy of their close friends, who can stand and say, Thus saith the Lord. People, people who see things as God sees them, people who have perception into the problems of the day and people who will be persistent even unto death in proclaiming the message which has been revealed unto them. Now many of us today are wondering where these people are. Where are they? Well, let me tell you this, God, I think, is wondering the same thing, because he thought he created them when he created you and me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, bless us all, we pray, as we try to be the prophets 
the true prophets of today. And now may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon thee and dwell in thine hearts forever.